name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So today is a gospel we read about uh, the story of, uh, of Christ and the Holy Family going into uh, Egypt. And uh, they fled to go to Egypt because um, uh, Joseph was warned in a dream um, that, uh, that bad things were happening. Um, and so he fled to Egypt in order to protect uh, Christ and the, and the Theotokos. Um, and the first question, of course, that comes to mind is, why did they go to Egypt in particular? And Egypt is the only country that Christ traveled to uh, outside of Israel. It's the only one country he went to. And if you remember in the Old Testament, Egypt um, was one of the bad guys. Uh, they enslaved the Israelites, um, God's people, and they treated them very badly. And so it turns out that Pharaoh and his armies is a symbol of Satan. In the Tazbihah, we sing that uh, how the uh, Egyptians were defeated and that Pharaoh and his armies drowned in the sea. Um, and it's a symbol of baptism, that when we go to baptism, uh, we defeat Satan. And so crossing the Red Sea becomes how um, is the type of, of defeating Satan. And so Moses emerges as a type of Christ um, who saves his people, the people of God, from the clutches of evil. Um, and so when we start thinking about why Jesus went to Egypt, uh, one of the, 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 the early Christian writers says, for just like a doctor, the Lord went into Egypt that he might visit it. At first glance, it seems as if he went down to Egypt in flight from Herod. The fact is, that he went to eat in order, he went in order to put behind the demons of Egypt's errors from the Old Testament. As Isaiah said, behold, the Lord goes down into Egypt, seated atop a swift cloud, and the idols of Egypt shall fall. So Christ did not go there to escape death, that he went down into Egypt, but that he might eradicate their deadly idols. So it's as if he went there to help the Egyptians get past their evil their evil past, to bless them with his presence. And St. John Chrysostom says the exact same thing. He talks about the tradition that the three wise men came from Babylon, another country that enslaved the people of Israel. He says, but why was it that the Christ child was sent into Egypt? He was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets, out of Egypt have I called my son. From that point onward, we see that the hope of salvation would be proclaimed to the whole world, Babylon and Egypt as they represent the world, even when they were engulfed in ungodliness. God wanted humanity to experience his bount bounteous gifts. So he called from Babylon the wise men and sent his family to Egypt. And so now when we look at the phrase, blessed be Egypt, my people, it's in a new light. Uh, it's certainly not that the, the people of Egypt are better than the other 220 countries, but it shows how loving and forgiving God is like even Egypt, the ones who enslaved my people, the ones who hurt the people of God, the ones who defied God, he said, blessed be Egypt, my people. He's embracing them. And so he's willing to take back these people, the people who symbolize Satan, and call them blessed and put them in your bosom. And so you have to ask yourself, what kind of God is this? How compassionate, how forgiving, how truly he's willing to give everyone a new start. And an entire country was the enemy of God. 
And if it can happen to an entire country that they can come back from being the enemy of God, certainly it can happen to me. If I start down the wrong path, I oppose God, I fight God, I persecute his people, I even enslave and kill them and blaspheme against their God. And then he says, you are blessed and you are my people. It's very loving and very embracing. In today's language, he'd say, you know, blessing to my haters, my peeps. So it's quite a story to go from evil to being blessed. It was chaotic. It was filled with pain for the Egyptians, but they eventually got there. And today we read about another chaotic story, Christ going into Egypt. Once again, do we really believe the gospel? Is this the Son of God? who came into the world, the Messiah who's been prophesied about for thousands of years. So let's suppose for a second, Emba Toedros wanted to preach the word of God in another country. He's, I don't know, Nicaragua. He wants to send a mission to Nicaragua and start a church there in a remote, you know, remote part of the, of the country. Wouldn't he plan it out a little bit? He'd send a priest, maybe even a bishop, He'd give him a few deacons, he'd give him some money, he'd give him a car, he'd buy him a house, he'd buy a plot of land for the church. He'd plan it just a little bit. And this is just trying to preach to Nicaragua. Or at least he'd rent a hotel room for a few months so that the priests would have a place to stay and the deacons would have the place to stay so they could start this this mission. Maybe he'd teach the priest the language. He'd teach him the customs. Maybe he'd call the government officials and say, hey, there's a contingency of the Coptic Orthodox Church coming to Nicaragua. We'd like you to open your doors for them so that they can preach. I mean, Sayyidina would probably plan it out just a little bit. Think about it before he did it. Yet when Christ comes into the world, God himself incarnate, the life and hope of the world, it seems like it's a bit of a mess. So he comes into a virgin who now gets disgraced. She's passed off to a man to protect her reputation so she's not embarrassed. And when it's time to give birth, you forgot to make reservations at the hotel. So there's no place. You've got to go to a a manger. You never even get a chance to clean the place up, hence the poop sermon from a few weeks back. And then you have to run and flee the country because they're trying to kill you. What kind of chaotic plan is this? Honestly, I I feel like sometimes I plan some of my kids' birthday parties better than this. So wait, aren't you God? In Chronicles it says, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so none is able to withstand you. David the prophet in the Psalm says, he determines the the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He's the one who said, I am who I am to Moses at the burning bush. The one who smote thousands, armies, kings. And now today, I read today's story and it seems like you can't even protect a baby, your own son, the Messiah. You flee and you leave him up to a young girl and another man to protect the Messiah. And they didn't do a great job. When we we read when he was 12, they left him in Jerusalem for a few days and forgot about him. Seems like a lot of chaos. But in all this chaos, God's plan emerges. 
In the chaos of family emergencies, fleeing the country for your life, not having a safe place to sleep, being food insecure, home insecure, safety insecure, in all of this, God was still there. And it's beautiful to me that God didn't give his own son any privileges. It's especially beautiful as we celebrate MLK tomorrow and this idea of equality for all, even God's son. The fact that God didn't give his own son any advantage over the rest of us is actually quite stunning. All of us, naturally, we want to use our money to give our kids a leg up. We want to give our kids an advantage in life. Using our knowledge, our connections, we want to get our kids jobs, find the right careers, go to the right schools, make the right choices so their life can be very as easy as possible. But when God sent his son, he didn't give him such privilege. He didn't use his power to prevent his son and the Theotokos, St. Mary, from dealing with the problems of life. Why wouldn't he give the Holy Family, the Holy Family, a free ride, a free hall pass through life with no issues, no problems, no hiccups, no insecurity? Why? Because the rest of us don't get one either. His own life serves as an example of the fact that the Christian isn't about having a way to get out of the difficulty on earth. That's not what Christianity is about. And what's also, is ama what's also amazing is how God gave Joseph the plan for all this. The timing was quite interesting. Obviously, God knew the plan from the beginning of time. Yet Joseph didn't get an email describing every detail of what's going to happen. I mean, we get more details from Mary about the two-day retreat. We get like a six-page email about two days, and yet Joseph gets nothing. He gets a dream like the night before. Hey, by the way, you got to go. And then the next day, he's got to go. He wouldn't even get his instructions laid out. He had no idea what the plan was. He had no idea, no idea what's going to happen. And this is about the life of his son and the Theotokos. One of the spiritual writers says, learn that your greatest pains and trials today will one day become your greatest delight. When will this happen? When will this happy time arrive? Only God knows. It will be when he pleases, for he knows when the time that will be the most suitable and the best for us. So the timing is God's timing. It's not my timing. And I don't get to know the, the game plan in advance. And there just has to be a trust in God's plan for me. Do you trust the engineer of our lives? In Egypt, when you go to Egypt, I don't know if everyone's been, you can see like pictures of where the Holy Family went. Like they, and they went all over the place. And they hopped around from place to place. And a lot of those places are now monasteries. And you can tell they didn't really know what's going to happen to them. But Father Anthony Canieris tells this, makes this great analogy. He says, it may get dark one of these days. You may go into a tunnel. You may get into a tunnel. And when you get into a railway tunnel and it gets dark, what do you do? Do you throw your ticket away and jump off? Or do you trust the engineer and hold on to your ticket? We hold on to our ticket, of course, because we know that the engineer of the train is none other than our loving Heavenly Father. He's in charge and he will lead us through many dark tunnels in life, ultimately even through the darkest tunnel of all, death. He will lead us through that tunnel to a bright, brilliant brightness beyond anything we have ever seen, heard, or even imagined. 
And Sister Ruth has this wonderful meditation. She says, you know, when we say, give us this day our daily bread, and we're certain that everything comes to us is our daily nourishing bread. That's what it means to believe, to take that daily bread and eat it and love it with gratitude. But that bread may be bitter. No one said it's going to be good tasting bread. It's still your daily bread. And we're called to eat it no matter how bitter it is. And it's sent to us from God. And so we don't always know how things are going to end. Like when you enter that dark tunnel on a train. And St. John Chrysostom says it quite beautifully. He says, wait till the end and you will see the outcome of events. Don't fuss. Don't worry. Imagine someone who is not of the trade watching a blacksmith start melting down gold and mixing in ashes and straw. You know what a blacksmith does, right? When they melt gold. If he does not wait until the end, he will think that the poor piece of gold is going to be destroyed. Yet the blacksmith does this to make the piece pure gold. What an analogy St. John Chrysostom uses, right? He says, watching someone melt a piece of gold and burning it with fire, you may not know what's going to happen next, but the blacksmith does. He, says, he thinks, I'm going to purify this. So what motivated the Lord to allow the Holy Family today, and by extension the rest of us, to endure such hardship? How do you stay motivated to deal with hardship after hardship and persevere? It's good to have a perspective. I want to read to you a letter uh, to some sisters in a convent from an Orthodox priest. He was writing to encourage them, and he gives us some advice on how to stay motivated. He says, if we have a living, trusting, acting faith, then we know that God is around every corner of our life, that he does indeed walk with us and talk with us and love us so deeply, so immensely. Do we act on this all day long? Don't we so often act as though God is somewhere out there in the vast, impersonal sky, too concerned with the really big things of the world to be thinking of us? Aren't we so often like the apostles in the boat, thinking we have to wake God up so that he will pay attention to me? For we just can't believe that we are so important to him because he loves us and that his, his love is part of every second of our life. As this second goes by, God loves me and cares for me. No second of the day is different. This is the kind of faith that makes us touch God every minute of any day. This is the kind of faith that makes living every minute of it a sacred, mystical, sublime experience. And this is the kind of faith, my dear sisters in Christ, that I pray you may have from this minute on. This idea of just constant prayer. But sometimes I pray for the right things, for the good things, and it doesn't happen to me. I ask God in prayer, and yet it doesn't change. So then why doesn't God give us some of the things we ask for? St. Augustine has a very nice way of thinking about this. He says, when someone loves you, someone's in love with you, they give you everything they have, and they don't hold back anything. In fact, if they could give you something they don't have, they would do that. And in fact, in the case of Christ, he literally gave us everything. He gave us even his life. He didn't hold that back. So I know he loves me. So then Augustine says, now diligently ponder, think about this, why love would refuse you certain things, although he would give you all that he had. So if God's going to give you all that he had, why does he refuse certain things? 
Love would have even offered what it did not possess if that were possible. Christ has offered himself in entirety. Therefore, we trust that God will give us what we need. Likewise, and this is the important part, we trust he holds back our petition out of his love for, for us. So even when I ask and I don't get, I have to trust that love is holding back because love just gives. So if Christ loves me and will give you everything, even himself, why does he hold back anything? Ah, it must be that love is holding back for a reason. There must be a struggle there that's going to be beneficial to me. That I love you so much, I'm going to put you in this struggle. And so we also need to think about the effects of this struggle on us. Why did God allow the Theotokos, Christ's mother, to struggle like that? to be scared like that, to be shocked like that, to be left alone as a young girl pregnant, walking around on a donkey from country to country under threat of death. St. Nectarios deals with this issue. He says, if God loves the world more than a mother loves those born from her womb, as it says in Isaiah, it follows that everything that happens, regardless of the form that it carries, is good because it happens for our instruction and admonition. For whom the Lord loves, he rebukes and he scourges every son whom he receives. And if the event seems evil to us, the thought originates from our perception, just as medicine is not evil, although it is often accompanied by an unpleasant sensation. Thus everything, this is hard to hear, that happens to a person is good, whether pleasant or grievous, because all things ultimately lead to our perfection, much like gold going into fire. God then is pleased to test his saints as gold in a pot, that they might become similar to him. The Holy Scripture teaches us to attribute everything that happens to us to the will of God, for not a single hair from our head falls without the will of God, <laughs> certainly in my case. And truly, how would it be possible for any activity to be independent of the divine will since God is all in all? So what he's saying, St. Nectarius, he claims that everything is good and everything is in God's hand, that even the things that aren't very pleasant or very hard are what lead us to our perfection. And he said, attribute everything that happens to us to the will of God. Everything? That's a lot. And then you have to wonder, how detailed is God's plan for all of us? A spiritual writer addresses this issue. It says, remember our great principles. First, there is nothing so small or so apparently indifferent which God does not ordain or permit, even to the falling of a leaf. Second, that God is sufficiently wise, good, powerful, and merciful to turn even the most apparently disastrous events to the advantage and profit of those who, are hum who humbly adore and accept his will in all that he permits. Is there anything more consoling in religion than these two principles? So he's stating that, we, that what turns a disastrous event to advantage and, a pro and profit is my approach to that event. It's how I look at it. How do I view what just happened in my life? Do I approach it as fire that is purifying my gold? Or do I view it as evil, the evil that wicked people are doing to me? In our modern world, 
This second option is what a lot of people do. It's called the victim mentality. Many of us are taught this. The evil people are doing this to us. And it puts us in a dungeon of our minds. It traps us. And it keeps us there, unable to get out. But the spiritual giants don't have that perspective. Sister Ruth Burroughs writes, For true friends of Jesus, evil does not exist. Say that again. For true friends of Jesus, evil does not exist. Everything is turned to good. Hurt, pain, evils done against us are transformed for our spiritual growth. Sin is also transformed. Sin is transformed as an opportunity to trust in God, receive His forgiveness, and experience His unconditional love. So even sin turns to good because it's a chance for me to feel God's love unconditionally. And then she continues, death itself, the epitome of all that is evil and destructive is transformed to eternal life. So the question finally I want to say is, how do we do all this? How do I get this kind of thinking? Today the Holy Family dealt Oh, today, how did the Holy Family deal with all the stuff? They were called by God through miracles and wonders. And then it seems like God just left them. So in the beginning, there's lots of miracles, lots of stuff. And then they're kind of left on their own, struggling, dealing with hardship after hardship, insecurity after insecurity. And so how do I adopt their attitude of just kind of walking a spiritual writer gives us an approach. He says, focus on yourself and the moment and on what's happening and just own it. So I'll read you what they say. In order to become a saint, you need only to resign yourself to the present moment. The revelation and discovery of this simple fact should give your soul peace and encouragement. And here's the part I really like. If God desires it to reign, desire the same if God desires the sun to shine, desire the same. If God desires to make things pleasant, desire the same. If God desires to visit you with hardship and struggle, desire the same. In our everyday lives, our Lord constantly offers us the happiness of participating in the mystery of redemption. So finally today, the Holy Family is, moder is modeling our family, the modern Christian family. It is a family that's led by the hand and the spirit of God and God's will in their lives. And it does so in order to do something very important for all of us. The Holy Family had to give something up today. Something that few of us want to give up. Control. They just did and, and went wherever God told them to go. It's like they surrendered and capitulated control completely. And it's the one thing we all think we're entitled to, controlling the destiny of our lives. Control is really a figment of your imagination. None of us are in control of anything. And, and giving up this control is really the destiny of being a Christian. Final quote, sorry, maybe not the final, I say that a lot and I, I lie to you. He says, the essential act of Christians is to lovingly surrender to him. Be content with loving him. Accept what he gives you. Do what he commands you. Bear the crosses that he sends you. 
and then leave him free to do in you and with you all that he desires. Your sanctity as well as your happiness is assured. Often you may not understand any of the events which succeed one another, yet do not be disturbed. Because of this ignorance, know that God holds the key to all the facts of history and all the details of the life in each person. Led by experience that certain events, apparently unimportant, are destined to have great consequences. That such and such a fact, exteriorly insignificant, was willed by God to rescue you from danger. Oh, how important it is to be pliable in the hands of God and to come to prayer freed from all attachment to one's ideas. And so what comes out of this is spiritual maturity means you're willing to be led. The more mature you are spiritually, the more you're willing to give up control, the more you're willing to be led, the more you're willing to say, thy will be done. You know, thy will be done is one of those things we say like 30 times in the liturgy during, you know, our Father. That's something we really don't mean. Last quote, I promise. I said that before, I know. And often, the places we are led by God are against our plans and our ambitions. And thus, they may entail sickness, grave losses, or unachieved goals. Though difficult to admit, many of us are a little afraid of God. That is, we are fearful of where He may want to lead us. His plans and directions for our lives may not be where we want them to go. We want to love God, but keep Him at a safe distance. Fearing to relinquish control of our lives to be led only by His will. We expect and are happy to see God in church services and activities. We love to keep God on this altar right here. And then I can come visit him on Sunday, say a few Lord have mercies, and then go back to my own thing. We seek to limit his actions and presence to holy matters. However, we are resistant when God leads us, often against our will, to see and experience him in difficulty, suffering, unexpected, and in the most mundane activities of life. We expect to see him in spiritual highs, the successes, the joyful moments of our lives, but fail to see that he is actually more present in the failures and the low points of our life. The difficult question is the difficult question that we must be willing to ask ourselves Am I willing to be led? Have I grown and matured to the point of being clothed and guide, guided by another? Am I willing to see Christ in the current circumstances of my life, the one in which he has led me to today, in the very events of today? Not in some hopeful future place, inshallah, but here and now. Like Peter, Christ calls us with two words, follow me. He bids us, take up your cross, follow me, leave everything if you must. Don't insist, and this is exactly what happened today with the Holy Family, don't insist on knowing exactly what comes next, but trust that you are in the hands of a loving God who will guide your life. We must come to this point where we can declare, my life is not mine, my life is his, my time is his, my goals are his, my ambitions and aspirations are his, my wants are his, my failures are his, his will is not mine, but his. 
May the Lord grant us this very important lesson as we see the Holy Family today struggle with uncertainty and insecurity as they hopped around from place to place under threat of execution. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Alleluia, 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 Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is 